gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? listeners this is jonah goldberg host of the remnant podcast brought to you by the dispatch and dispatch media and you're going to hear me say that again in just a few minutes if not a few seconds um this is the first 40 minutes or so i don't know exactly where adam has decided to drop the hammer of our special exclusive uh um for members only live event where steve hayes chris Darwald, and yours truly um, talked about the nature of media, talked about the nature of uh, um, what we're doing at the dispatch, and of course, talked about the um, the ongoing soap opera that is Fox News. And um, so the first, again, half-ish, 40%-ish, um, is going out as a remnant podcast. And then if you are a member already, you can just go over to the site and go to the dispatch live feed. And um, you can watch or listen as you see fit the um, the whole thing, including the Q and A. Um, and I'll just be really blunt and obvious about why we're doing this. We want more remnant listeners to become Dispatch subscribers. Um, we don't think that there is anything wrong with that. We think there's a lot that is good with that. So um, you can do a trial membership. You know, sign up for a month if you want, uh, just so you can listen to the damn thing, and then. I think it's worthwhile. I think people really seem to enjoy it. We had a really good time with the audience. And then you can decide in a month whether you want to keep subscribing, maybe become a yearly member or whatever. Um, but that's how you're going to get all that, that, that sweet, sweet content. And in the process, at least for that month, or maybe forever, if you decide to stick around, um, you'll get access to all of Nick Cattagio, a.k.a. Alapundit stuff. You'll get Scott Lincecum's sweet, sweet, sweet economics and trade uh, uh, disquisitions, which I think are just the most policy-rich um, things out there. Um, you'll get everything from Sarah Isger's The Sweep to Dispatch Politics, which really is a fantastic new newsletter, to the Daily um, Morning Dispatch, which is one of the best news products available today and easily worth the price of subscription by itself. You'll get uh, the, the G-File, my meager contribution to the universe. Um, and uh, you'll get access to Chris Starwald stuff. You'll get access to everything. And you'll also be helping us do um, great and good things going forward. And you'll help us pay the light bills for the Remnant podcast as well. Um, so just go over to the dispatch.com. Check out the, the Dispatch Live feed. If you ever watched Dispatch Live, which is another thing you'd get access to if you were a member, you can see the whole thing there. Um, there's video. I mean, the fact that you actually get to see the physical specimens of Chris Starwalt, Jonah Goldberg, and Steve Hayes may be a, uh, less than a selling point for you, um, but be that as it may. So on this episode, uh, or this down payment on this mega episode, this, this, this super colossal, terrific episode, um, we cover everything from uh, Tucker and Don Lemon, um, which is probably the first and last time I will be talking about Don Lemon in a while. Um, we cover the problem of audience capture with cable news. We offer our theories about the real reason or reasons why Tucker Carlson was fired. Um, we talk about why Steve and I left uh, Fox and why um, uh, poor Chris Starwell was canned. Um, and we talk about what we're trying to do with the dispatch and how much we um, 
value and love the dispatch community. They're, um, Chris was very funny. I held my own. And Steve Hayes said some things. Uh, no, it was, I think it was a great conversation. Uh, the audience really seemed to like it. We got great feedback on it. And if you become a member or if you tell your friends to become members, you will have more access to these kinds of products as well as uh, first dibs on all sorts of meetups around the country as we go forward. So let us know what you think. And thanks again for listening. Um, we owe it all to you guys. Greetings, dear listeners. Uh, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. We are here at uh, Worldwide AI Headquarters, the one of the last bastions of liberty and the free thought around. Um, I met with these guys in the library down there a few minutes ago so we could work out really what we were going to talk about and the order of things, and I took copious notes. Um, so uh, we're just going to kind of wing it. First of all, thank you all for coming. Um, whenever we do these meetup things, we're always just so... Well, we have a bunch of different reactions. The first is, wow, it's so great that so many people want to do it. Um, uh, so quickly, we close enrollment in these things within like 48 hours, and then we're like damn, we should be making more money off of this. Um, so uh, we're going to try and figure that out as I drink from my delightful remnant coffee mug. Um, so um, I'm not going to do a big uh, introduction thing because if you don't, what are you doing here if you don't know who they are? Um, but uh, I'm joined by my co-founder of The Dispatch, Steve Hayes, and um, my partner in various crimes, at least in three states. Uh, Chris Starwalt, uh, welcome. Thank you for doing this. So the plan is to talk about the state of media and cable news and all of these kinds of things. And that's the text. And the subtext is the, to one extent or another, the the fecal festival that Fox News has got itself into. Um, and um, but uh, I'm not supposed to curse on this, so that's instead of the more alliterative and colloquial S show. Um, so uh, we're going to start with some of that and then take it where we go. We'll do lots of Q&A and all that kind of thing, and then hopefully there'll be a little time to schmooze afterwards and, and whatnot. Um, so why don't I just sort of start with... Um, I'll start with the story. So the last meetup I did was with Steve in Denver. It's a lot of fun, great people. Um, and some Dominion story had just broken out. It was like, this is like the beginning of the onslaught kind of thing. And, uh, Steve was like, so Jonah, what were your first thoughts when you saw this news? And I know I just said, I'm not supposed to curse, but, um, I said, you know, I'm, this is supposed to be a high-minded event, but to be honest, my first thought was, I told you so, motherfuckers. Um... <laughs> And uh, um, so that's sort of the context. I'm just disclosing my priors, as we say, in these high-minded intellectual gatherings. Um, and I promise I'll try to not to work any further blue. But so like, what we start with this is that one of the things, the inspiration for this was, was Chris when this stuff started blowing up all over. Um, and he, we were comparing notes about how annoying it was to be dragged onto TV shows to sort of just pee on Fox from a great height, right? And like say what the hosts of these in these liberal reporters who hate Fox no matter what, they want you to just confirm all of their stuff. And, you know, the truth is, is that all three of us spent a good amount of time at Fox happily. We had lots of friends there. There are lots of good people who do good work there. And we saw a transformation happen over time. 
And so, um, why don't I start this question with what was good, what was right about Fox prior to 2015? Like, what was it when people attacked Fox? What did you say to say that was unfair or inappropriate or or not right? Uh, well, first, I want to thank you for these microphones because it makes me want to do like a Stephen Sondheim medley right now. If we could bring it, if we could bring it down to a really tight, very tight spot, and I'd like to talk about sending the clowns. They're already they're already here. Um, I would also like to thank uh, you and Steve both um, for starting the dispatch. Number one. Uh, for as soon as I was uh, shot out of a cannon uh, by Fox News, uh, that you, like, circus people were running around with a net to catch me, which was <clears throat> extraordinarily comforting. Uh, that was very good. And I'd also like to thank you for quitting. Uh, your decisions to quit Fox News and do it in the way you did. And I think this is important to remember. So there would have been the quitting that you could have done that was like, I just, I am shocked, shocked to find all of this gambling going on here. I can't believe it. And I, I excuse myself. And there have been people who left Fox, some who left on their own, some who got fired, that it was like they had this crisis of conscience all of a sudden and no longer could tolerate. When you left, you left with dignity and you also left around a specific cause. And the specific cause was the movie that Fox Nation had made that showed literal black helicopters and asked the question whether January 6th was an inside job and said that the government was putting conservatives in Guantanamo Bay. And you said, we can't be part of an organization. And you, Fox had the chance, by the way, to say, we disavow this. We are, they said, we, I think, as Ted Cruz once said of Donald Trump, I think he's terrific. And you did the right thing, but you did it in the right way. And when that movie became part of the explanation, explication, uh, how Tucker Carlson got fired, that movie was part of it. And you helped bring that to the public's attention. So would you please give a round of applause to these two gentlemen for being decent mammals and human beings. He's blushing. That's easy. Now, if I could get you to blush, then we'd have it all. Then we'd have it all. Okay, so I didn't answer the question. My question. Ah, the question. So um, I came to the Fox News from the Washington Examiner, which had been a startup. I had been a reporter in West Virginia and came to Washington in 2007, and the Washington Examiner, Phil Anschutz, had started the Washington Examiner. And this will be, this will, did not seem as hilarious as it will sound to you now. We were going to make a go of print media again, and it was going to be awesome. Uh, did not work out. I don't know whether you know this, did not work out. Uh, but it uh, brought me into sort of the world of uh, big-time national journalism kind of stuff, uh, and when I got to Fox in 2010, I can honestly say that it was one of the only places in big-time news, in the news business, where you saw, you know, the, the old motto was fair and balanced. And that got a lot of mockery. Um, but there was a standard, certainly in the Washington Bureau. I never worked in New York. I was never posted in New York. But certainly in the Washington Bureau, 
certainly with Bill Salmon, certainly with Chris Wallace, certainly with Brett Baer, certainly with the producers who worked there, certainly the people who worked in the White House. There was a standard that was going to be met in terms of the basics. But, and this was really important, there were all these stories that the mainstream or other national media outlets, and I consider Fox a mainstream media outlet, that all of the rest of the mainstream were not doing because of either implicit or explicit bias. And Fox would do those stories. And it was fun and it was cool and it was interesting and it was different. And it was, I had an extraordinary amount of fun for the first seven or eight years that I was at Fox. Steve? Uh, my answer will be similar. I, I, uh, I started watching Fox News when Fox News launched, what, 1996. And um, I was running a program at the Fund for American Studies called the Institute on Political Journalism. And I had Britt Hume in to speak. And Britt had just left ABC News to, to move to Fox. And he gave this incredible speech. Um, actually, now that I'm talking about it, it was at AEI. AEI hosted us and talked about the founding of Fox News, why it existed, why it needed to exist and what it would be doing. And the thing that he said that left an impression on me and certainly left an impression on the students at the time was that he said, we're not here to correct left-wing bias with right-wing bias. We're here to report the news. We're here to ask questions from different perspectives. We're here to give the news sort of a 360-degree look. And I thought, this is brilliant. I think it'll work. And the way that he articulated it was great. I think that's what Fox did for years and years and years. Um, I joined Fox in the spring of 2009, just a few months after Barack Obama had been elected. I was college roommates with Brett Baer. Um, he and I have been friends forever. And I can tell you some of those stories later. Um, just ask him what he wore at our I buy, you wear party. <laughs> he loves that question. Um, but I... I uh, joined Fox and, and started on the special report panel and I loved it. I thought it was sort of for me the, the, the height of my, the coolest thing you could do with your career. If you got into to this business, I would go on and three or four nights a week spar with Charles Krauthammer. I agreed with him a lot. But when I disagreed with him, those were my favorite nights because I would, you know, Charles would probably sort of check his, his mental history and have a brilliant answer crafted just perfectly in three paragraphs. Um, and I would be scrambling all day long trying to come up with something to, 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 to hold up to, to Charles Krauthammer. Um, but it was great. And there was a sort of a sense of camaraderie and you, you were friends with the people who worked there and it, and it was fun. And that all changed. And I'm, I'm interested actually in getting, in getting your views. I'm not trying to take over and start asking questions, but um, that all changed either with the departure of Roger Ailes or the arrival of Donald Trump on the political scene. Two, two things that happened in close proximity to one another and I think had um, interesting sort of long-term effects. But it wasn't, it, it, Fox ceased to be like that. Um, it, you, it, it was no longer welcome to make, at least in my view, to make arguments that weren't sort of where the prevailing mood at Fox was. And you could feel it. You know, you'd be sitting there on the panel and you'd know that this wasn't working. And you, you'd hear whispers about the ratings and who people liked and who people didn't like. Um, and just at that point, it was it became an, uh, an environment where it, it didn't seem as as fun. Yeah. yeah. So what, one of the things I was trying to get at um, 
in the question is, I think one of the brilliant things that Fox did was Ailes and Britt Hume and a few other people, they had this long-term memory and understanding of how the news gets made. And one of the things that they objected to was that um, the New York Times basically was the only outlet in America that could create a news story. It was on the front. And sometimes, it, look, it, was, it wasn't the New York Times creating a news story if they were, if, you know, America invade, liberates Kuwait. That's a news story. It's going to be on the front page. But they could elevate stories that weren't um, necessarily on anybody's radar and they would set the agenda for the rest of the mainstream media. Everyone would say, okay, this is where the New York Times is taking us now. And one of the brilliant things that Ailes did was he said, we're not going to do that, right? It doesn't mean what the Times is doing is wrong, but there are these other things that we want to set the agenda on that we think are important news stories. And, um, and so we're not just going to follow their lead. And that attitude was, I think, very healthy for a diverse media environment. I remember I wrote many columns defending Fox because there was all... One of my favorite things, it's, all, it's a very sort of like uh, sort of, you know, Saul Alinsky kind of tactic that you would get from a lot of these activist people who hated Fox. They would say, um, they would storm FCC meetings or congressional hearings with signs saying, um, we need more diversity in corporate media. Kill Fox News. And I was like, well, wait a second. This is the one thing that's different from all these other things that all basically report the same way on the same stories. And you think you're aiding and abetting, you're promoting diversity by saying, we need to muzzle those guys. And I thought that that was a, that, that playful aspect of Fox was good. It got, I'd say the evolution that got really dysfunctional, that's only partly to blame on Fox, this is again, pre-Trump, um, is that, we, and we used to talk about this a lot with Brett, is the Fox News effect, where Fox said something was a big story that gave permission psychologically to a lot of other outlets to not cover it. So, like, the, if you want to know why, like, Fast and Furious, I'm just trying to think of some of those things that Operation Fast and Furious. <laughs> um, yes. Not the Vin Diesel Fast and Furious, but like, uh, like Benghazi, um, a lot of immigration stuff. If Fox picked it up as a story, then the New York Times said, well, that's a Fox News story. As if it, like, simply by being covered by Fox, it no longer became news. And then you kind of got the same sort of tit-for-tat thing where Fox wouldn't cover things that the, the mainstream media was covering because, well, you know, that's, that's, that's what they care about at MSNBC. Our people don't want to hear that stuff. And people got inside their heads in terms of the coverage on the news side. On the opinion side, I think things went south sooner and we just all sort of shrugged our shoulders. Well, that's the opinion side. And then like, you know, um, and there were a lot of good people on the opinion side still, but it became over time very cult of personality. On, on the opinion side. That sound right to you guys? No? Yes? Roger Ailes, it is really unfortunate for the American Republic that he had such a catastrophic personal life and all of his weaknesses as a person because he was the only person who seems to have been able to understand what the game is. And the game is that you say to the New York Times, well, I'll tell you a story. The day that Juan Williams got fired by NPR for being on Bill O'Reilly and saying that if he was on an airplane, do you remember this? If he was on an airplane 
And uh, Muslim men got up and put their prayer rugs down in the aisle and started praying while they were on the plane that he would get nervous. Because, and this was still, we were still close enough to 9-11. And he said, yeah, I'd get nervous. And he said, no, I'm not going to like, you know, knock him down or anything, but sure, it'd make anybody nervous. And this set off a Twitter freak out on the left. And people have been looking for an opportunity to tag Juan Williams and NPR fired him. And it was like an overnight Samaro, we're done with Juan Williams. Magic Juan, my friend. And I thought, oh boy, how are we going to deal with this? This is going to be tough. I like wake up at five the next morning. I'm like, I don't, what am I supposed to do with this? How are we going to deal with this? And as I open my computer, there is the announcement that Fox News is hiring Juan Williams full-time, 100%, we love you, Juan, and basically sticking its thumb in the eye of NPR. And by the end of that business day, it was clear that Roger Ailes had beaten NPR, that NPR had made a mistake they fired a esteemed African-American journalist for expressing himself, and, and Roger knew where he could steal a march. And that was the, the fun that he was having, the fun that he was having. And I won't be at work as blue as you, but the unofficial motto of Fox News at that time was, F me? No, 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 F you, right? <laughs> so it was, the, the, the idea was that Fox was not different from CBS News or these other places. It was a different variety of in the 31 flavors, but that the premise was the same and that, and you guys will certainly recall when the Obama administration tried to play hardball with Fox, uh, that the other news organizations, Fox's competitors said, you can't do that to Fox. You can't try to muscle them out of these interviews and push them around in the pool. You can't kick them off the campaign plane because they are legit. Now, I will tell you something. When that happens this time, it will be a very different story because as it turns out, the part that made it possible were nerds like us, right? The nerds who were not as profitable. So 80%, I don't know what it is now, but like 80% of the revenue came from the opinion division, right? Uh, they made it rain. They, and that's why they get paid tens of millions of dollars. That's why all of that stuff. But they made it rain. And the news division, as was frequently pointed out to us, generated 20% or less than the revenue. But, as I would gamely point out, we're the skeletal structure that is holding this big blubbery mass upright. Because if you lose us, then you lose the premise. You lose the premise. And what happened after Roger Ailes melted down and as timing would have it, his moral personal collapse occurred right as Donald Trump was entering the scene. And when he destroyed himself and at the same time that Trump was laying waste to the company, the decision, I remember very distinctly when the decision to scrap the old fair and balanced uh, slogan was made. And I was like, I thought that was good. I thought that's why we were, I thought that was the idea, guys. Is that cool? And they changed this. And do you remember I, I, the, the new slogan was like, the right news and the right opinion. And I'm like, I'm creeped out. I feel unsafe. What does that mean? And the, it was like, have you ever seen the movie The Invention of Lying? It's a great, if you have not seen it, uh, it's Ricky Gervais. Uh, and the premise is nobody had ever thought about lying before, so he just starts lying, and it, it, he gets away with it for a long time. And it was like, with Roger gone, somebody said, you know what we ought to try doing? 
is just jamming it all the way, right? Has anybody ever tried maximum thrusters 24 hours a day? It was like, this is amazing. So I think that's what happened. But I, I think if I can just pick up on that real quickly, I mean, I, I think, um, well, first of all, just an observation. Isn't it interesting that, you know, the, the three of us up here, I mean, people know roughly where we stand on things. Nobody would probably describe us as straight down the middle reporters. And we're all placing ourselves on the news side at Fox, not on the opinion side of Fox, which I think is telling the opinion. He was on the news side. He was actually literally worked on the news side, but I mean, we were both contributors. (laughs) (laughs) We were both contributors who were employed largely to give our opinions and analysis, but we thought of ourselves on the news side. And I would say the distinction is we were sort of, it was opinion and analysis tethered to facts. Yeah rather than sort of knee-jerk, this is what I think now. To pick up on Chris's... You're hiding behind Charles Krauthammer. <laughs> to pick up on, on Chris's last point, I mean, I think that's a, really, um, that's a really important point to make. And I do think the fact that it coincided with the arrival of Trump is not just a factor, it's sort of everything. Um, I remember I used to work with Brett sometimes on his questions when he was doing interviews, when he'd have newsmaker interviews on the show, we'd exchange emails, do some questions, sometimes sit down together, do some questions. And I'm sure most of you remember the episode where Donald Trump, uh, suggested that Ted Cruz's father had somehow been involved in the assassination of JFK. Just asking questions. Just asking. Suggested, revealed. I mean, these are... <laughs> I mean, it was obviously totally preposterous. We had people doing reporting to show that it was preposterous. That's exactly actually... what the Zodiac Killer would want you to believe. But Brett was interviewing Trump at the end of this news cycle, arguably beyond the news cycle, right? It had been a thing for three, four days. Probably it was done. And we were talking about it. And I I had suggested, I think we ought to ask a question about this because this is just bonkers. It's This is crazy that he would say this. We should ask him, even if it's sort of run its way through the news cycle. And Brett, to his credit, said, yeah, I think you're right. We should ask him because it is crazy. I mean, there had been reporting about it. Like, Nobody actually thought this was true. And so we asked Trump about it. And in a way that we would all come to understand Donald Trump operates, he just owned it. And he went further. He jammed it all the way, to use your parlance. I mean, he just he just owned it. And he went further. And he said, yeah, well, it was, it was in the National Enquirer. The National Enquirer should be winning a Pulitzer, not the New York Times. Literally said that on the show. And just went further and further. And I think in some ways, that, that took place obviously on a, a news show at Fox and the best news show at Fox. But that's what happened. That is exactly what happened is you saw people who, were, who, who kind of took their cues from Donald Trump as often as not defended Donald Trump by making his arguments or taking his arguments a few steps further than they had, than, than he had taken them himself. Yeah, I mean, so, since we're on, before we go the transformation of Fox thing. I mean, just on the Roger Ailes point, I mean, I'm sure I've said this on the podcast before, but when people are asked me what he was like, I would say he was the most interesting mix of boss hog and Aristotle I ever met, right? Because, <laughs> I mean, he should actually, he could have played Baron Harkonnen from the Dune movies. I mean, he was just like this corpulent, unpleasant to look at creature and you go into his office and you you can't help but like wonder where his pet tiger on a chain is or like 
Like, are you going to say something and a f- something in the floor is going to open up and you're going to fall into it? And um, he was a deeply, deeply flawed human being. But, um, and this is a true story. A friend of mine worked for Fox Digital when it was just starting up in the early 2000s. And he went to the Fox New York Christmas party. And Roger Ailes to the entire company, right? Entire company, everyone's there having a good time. And he gives a little buck up speech. And he says, you know what the secret of Fox's success is? Better looking women around shinier poles. <laughs> and like my friend is like, do they have an HR department here? Like, <laughs> if I laugh at that, am I in trouble? You know, and um, so, I mean, I, I, I think he was a genius and we should lionize the genius part and his philosophy of the place before he gave into himself was right in a lot of ways, but he was a flawed human being. Um, but he also deserves a lot of the blame slash credit. He was one of the guys who talked Trump into running. He walked Trump through all and he said, you know, look, I mean, you'll get this, you'll get that. You'll get a lot of name ID. You got nothing to lose. And if, and you might win. And he kind of walked, he reassured him that it was a smart thing to do. So he is, there's a certain kind of Greek tragedy aspect of this. You know, sure, just use some wax, make some fake wings. You can fly. It'll be great. And um, so the, the transformation of Fox, I think, you know, we should get onto that, is I would argue, because I was at National Review, I was a big... Um, internal lobbyist for the against Trump issue, which everyone now remembers as the never Trump issue, but never Trump wasn't even a phrase back then. Um, This was National Review doing what it had done for a half century, which was stating an opinion about politics in a primary. And we basically made the argument that um, we were going to essentially endorse the field over Donald Trump going into the Iowa caucuses. Not a single vote had been cast yet, but we took this position. We got people from across the the conservative firmament, many of whom deeply regret having contributed to. Yeah, the if you, if you want to have a good a good laugh this evening when you get home, look at the author list of the people who wrote on that. And you're like, it's like, is this CPAC? Oh wow, you guys really flipped. And, and uh, I remember being at Fox, where all day long, one host after another, including people like Chris Wallace, who's you know philosophically simpatico. Like, who does National Review think it is to tell voters who to vote for? And I was like, really? I mean, like, I think it thinks it's National Review. I mean, like, (laughs) that's what it does. I mean, it's like, who does Sports Illustrated think it is to tell us who's going to go to the playoffs? I mean, it's just like what it does, right? And, um, And you could tell how this was at the time where Rush would occasionally field test criticism of Trump, and then he would get blown up by the callers, and he learned not to go that way. And it was really, you know, this this line that David French got from me, but he uses it all the time now, which is, there was this French intellectual 19th century who said, there go the people, I must go with them, for I am their leader. And it was, this respecting the audience thing has a long tail. And the people went with the audience. And Hannity, who... When my mom had a radio show, Hannity's first advice to my mom was um, never forget your base. And that was always Hannity's philosophy about this stuff. And it became the philosophy of the entire network in a lot of ways, which was just that... um, And there was something specific. I remember you were the guy who first pointed it out to me. 
there was something specific about New York, New York's love affair for Trump because he was a holdover from this nostalgic era of the Giuliani years, this sort of bridge and tunnel populism that um, I think the phrase you used at the time with me was, there's just something about that stuff that tickles the erogenous zones of people at Fox. And I think part of it was, if you looked at the lineup at Fox, enormous number of people were New Yorkers who now lived in Long Island, New, New Jersey, who had these rosy, nostalgic views of how the city had been lost to the blacks or to the, you know, to the libs or whatever. And Giuliani was the guy who fought it. And Trump is, was, was one of those guys. And he, it was the merger of traditional red state agrarian populism to sort of New York City populism that, that kind of just transformed the place and transformed conservatism in a lot of ways. When uh, Steve and I were at Fox, uh, Steve is from Wisconsin, uh, and I am from West Virginia. Um, and the play, the parts of the country that were the most Republican, West Virginia is the second or third most Republican state in America. My home County voted 75% for Donald Trump. Um, were not represented, uh, in New York or in Washington, right? The people that you met were, uh, predominantly Roman Catholic, predominantly Northeastern, uh, predominantly, uh, you know, Bill O'Reilly, uh, Chaminade High School, uh, Mineola, New York, uh, went to Marist. Uh, a vi- that Bill O'Reilly was the uh, avatar of the Roger Ailes, who was actually from Warren, Ohio, but the Roger Ailes, uh, that sort of Archie Bunker kind of energy that Fox had. It was a, a populistic, but not explicitly Republican. It was skeptical of authority, and it was most of all skeptical of pointy-headed smart people, right? Um, but there, it, based on where Fox's viewers are, there should have been a lot of people from Florida. There should have been a lot of people from Texas. There should have been a lot of people from Georgia and Tennessee and those places, but there were not. That's, that's who made up the culture. And when Trump arrived... He spoke their language. They spoke his language, right? It was the, the, Fox, the Fox and Friends phone from the Golden Throne calling in Donnie from Queens online too. What are you thinking, Donnie? Was per, it was perfect, right? It was, and I, it, which of course, uh, have you listened to uh, the Donald Trump tapes from Howard Stern? Masterful, right? Like these here were the two giants of BS, of monetized BS, <laughs> On the radio for hours, this is where Donald Trump said that avoiding sexually transmitted diseases in the 1970s was his personal Vietnam. Say what you will about the decency of that statement. It's a funny thing to say. It's a very funny thing to say. So I I think we've tried to be fair and balanced here. We said some nice things about Fox in the beginning. We all kind of stuff. So let's, let's get to the irresponsible gossip portion of the program. Um, Do either of you have any confidence that the public narratives about why Tucker was fired are the actual explanations for... What are are your theories about what the real story is or will be proven to be? I ask you, Steve Hayes. So I definitely do not think we have the full story yet. Um, I think what we've seen in the reporting about Tucker's dismissal 
probably captures different elements of it. And if you put it together, it starts to form a coherent and, and maybe accurate narrative. But look, there, there was a big Wall Street Journal piece um, that sort of led the reporting that Tucker was fired because he had used um, a misogynistic epithet about a senior female in the company. And that Fox's uh, executives saw this, you know, moments before, um, or, or I guess a couple of days before they fired him and decided that they would fire him. I find that hard to believe. I find it hard to believe for a couple of reasons. One... The woman it described is not the most pleasant person in the world. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I, mean, I wouldn't use that word. No, but, um, but worse things have probably been said about her. She's not loved. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. she's not. She's not loved. Um, no, look, I, I think it's it's very hard for me to believe that Fox executives were not very, very well briefed about what Tucker Carlson had in his text messages before they were deposed in a $1.6 billion lawsuit. It seems hard to believe that they just found this out a couple of days before they fired him and after the lawsuit settled. Um, so I don't think that was the that was necessarily the whole story. I, I, I'm much more persuaded by, um, and you know, we all I think still are having conversations with people in inside of Fox, and in some cases, people inside of Fox who have a fair amount of power. I, I'm far more persuaded by the argument that this was uh, an accumulation of of things, and that ultimately Tucker sort of came to see himself as bigger than Fox. And, um, you know, certainly there were, I think, uh, elements of that in the, in the, the Patriot Purge episode where I think a number of Fox executives didn't know that this film had been made and were shocked to learn what was in it. True fact, Steve actually notified some senior executives at Fox that the thing had been made. <laughs> they were surprised. And there was sort of a scramble after uh, Jonah sent me a text I sent several emails to people inside of Fox and then there was a scramble sort of to find out who knew about this? How does this happen? Uh, was a question that one of the senior executives put, I think, a little bit more colorfully on one of their calls. So there, there was a sense that he was unsupervised. He could do whatever he wants. And by the way, Tucker said this in virtually every public appearance that he had when he was talking about his role at Fox or answering a question about his role at Fox, he would say, I can do whatever I want. I can say whatever I want. Nobody puts the brakes on me. It's the best place in the world to work because I'm on my own. I'm totally autonomous. And I think he was right about that, but even more than, than Fox had intended. So I think that's probably the big, the big takeaway is he became bigger than, than Fox and that wasn't going to work. So Chris, I want you to respond to that, but also I want to add in, I think metaphorically, symbolically, whatever, Tucker's attitude that he could do whatever he wants, you know, I was, it gets at what I think the, the real problem at Fox was. It wasn't that Suzanne Scott, who's the CEO, was ordering everybody to do these terrible things, is that, she didn't care what people did. It was it was more a lack of leadership than affirmative. She was uh, she was absentee, and if you got good ratings, she didn't care. She didn't want to hear about it at all. And so when Tucker says, "I get to say whatever the hell I want," that's a symbol of the fact that he was just completely unsupervised. Like the executives at Fox were just not 
running the thing. And um, one of the weirdest things was how the the primetime hosts had internalized Trump's sense of grievance about how the establishment doesn't love them, right? And they would talk about how, literally talk about how Bill Salmon and Chris Steyerwald were like the establishment. We were. It's true. It was pretty awesome. <laughs> they were holding us back and like all this kind of stuff. And I think that like this sort of weird dysfunctional culture um, was really about a failure of leadership rather than necessarily... Like when, when Steve was notifying people about the Patriot Purge thing, which again, I learned about on TV, right? It's not like this was like some salacious inside info. I saw a commercial for it and I was like, I texted Steve and I sent him the clip and I was like, if this turns out to be what it looks like, I, gotta, I think I gotta go. And Steve looked at it and says, yeah, I think so, me too. And, um, and so like the executives who found out about it from Steve and I remember, you're talking about a corporation that spent, I don't know what the budget for Patriot Purge was, but it wasn't nothing, right? Like, people were hiring camera crews and doing scripts and borrowing edit suites to make a thing that the leadership of the company just didn't know happened, right? Which is not a sign of real hands-on leadership. I mean, there's not a lot of people in the dispatch spending large amounts of our money on weird projects that we're only going to hear about when they end up on on like the web, you know? Um, but um, anyway, so Chris, what are we wrong about or do you agree? Well, then explain your coffee mug. If that's true, <laughs> then explain that if that's the case. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I've been fighting for this coffee mug for years, so. And it is awesome. Uh, and if I'm, not, if I'm not the establishment, then explain how come I'm drinking out of this $40 MSRP, <laughs> the dispatch Yeti tumbler that only a real boss would have. Okay, so that was the down payment. That was the amuse-bouche. That was the, the tease, the sizzle before the steak. Actually, it was the sizzle before even better sizzle and the steak. Um, so if you can go now and become a, a, a member of the dispatch, we will put an easy um, sign-up link in the show notes of this podcast. And you can also always just go to the site, um, become a member today. Uh, you'll be doing us a favor. You'll, I, I honestly and sincerely think you'll be doing yourself a favor and you can quit at any time. So like for the price of a latte and a half, you'll get access to everything at the dispatch for a month. Um, if you only sign up for a month and then, um, um, and you may decide that it was, it's, it's worth hanging around. I think you will. So thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.